This is Know It All. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Thank you to D.C. High School student Trayvon for our theme music. As you know, we aim to make you, our listeners, know-it-alls about education law, policy, and practice that affect you. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. I am thrilled to be a Blog Talk Radio featured host. Be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today we're talking about socioeconomic status and education. My guest is Dr. Paul Gorski, a professor of education and founder of the Undergraduate Social Justice Program at George Mason University. He is also the founder of EdChange, a nonprofit organization that helps celebrate diversity and promote educational equity. Good morning, Paul. Welcome to Know It All. Good morning. Very happy to be here. So, Paul, you've written and spoken about the culture of poverty myth. What is the myth and where did it come from? The culture of poverty myth, um, unfortunately, is kind of is what uh, drives conversations today about uh, education and, and uh, socioeconomic status or class. Uh, it comes actually from the work of a guy named Oscar Lewis, who was a sociologist and anthropologist, and uh, uh, most of his well-known work comes out of the 50s, late 50s through the 60s, and maybe into the mid to early 70s. And he studied small communities, small villages uh, of, low, of poor Puerto Rican and uh, Mexican people. And through uh, that ethnographic research, he coined the term the culture of poverty to describe um, the, some of the cultural attributes that he found uh, in, in those groups. So that's sort of where it came from. It, uh, the, the problem, of course, with it was that he, he studied these small villages, and then he extrapolated that to uh, all poor people. Uh, and talked about the culture of poverty. And, you know, the interesting thing about it was that uh, the people in the social sciences, people who were studying poverty in other ways, pretty immediately rejected uh, the notion. Uh, and other people who tried to do the, so, you know, tried to replicate his findings in other contexts found that it was impossible to do so. Uh, basically what they found was we can't assume just because people are poor that they all share the same culture. And we could talk later about why that's kind of a ridiculous assumption to begin with. Um, but the other interesting thing is uh, that the phrase, the very common phrase, uh, blaming the victim actually was coined in response to the culture of poverty idea introduced by Oscar Lewis. Uh, um, because that's, in essence, what it does. It looks for uh, negative cultural attributes in poor people and uses that to explain why they're poor to begin with. 
Uh, and that, of course, is the biggest trouble with the idea that it's it, uh, it does, in essence, blame the victim. It it, uh, it does not consider bigger social or economic forces that contribute to poverty. Mm-hmm. So in the education context, why is the myth of a culture of poverty dangerous? Well, I, I think it's dangerous for... Uh, I think one of the reasons why it's dangerous is that it's so simplistic that it's very attractive for people. Um, It does not require any kind of uh, deep consciousness or understanding uh, about uh, about poverty or why poverty exists. But I think at at a more base level in in schools, I think uh, because very negative attributes like violence, a lack of motivation and that sort of thing. Uh, those are the kinds of things that are attached to low-income families, not uh, anything about strengths or anything about gifts or abilities, but it's usually these negative attributes. And I think what ends up happening is it makes teachers, it contributes to teachers having low expectations for you know their most disenfranchised students. Uh, uh, you know that that they're you know that they're not going to care about education, or that they're not intelligent enough to do uh, certain kinds of of uh, schoolwork. I think it actually, and research has shown that uh, actually that when teachers are trained using the cultural poverty model, they actually end up having more stereotypes than they did coming into the training. So that, of course, is not good. Right. And and there are several smaller pieces of that myth, such as those that you described, that are deficiency-based, that, you know, that poor people don't care about education, don't value education, they don't work hard. And you've done research and seen research that that specifically counters those those beliefs. What other research have you found? Oh, yeah, Um you know, I did this kind of mini study where I took some of the most common stereotypes that um, that are kind of embedded into the culture of poverty framework, and I went to look to see if there was any evidence supporting them. So some of those would be things like poor people tend to be substance abusers, poor people uh, don't care about education, poor people are bad parents, and that sort of thing. And actually, if you look at uh, research about these things, what you find is that they're all completely false. So, for instance, wealthy people are more likely to be substance abusers than poor people. Um, we have there's research going back to about the mid-'80s showing that poor people basically have the exact same attitudes about education as wealthy people. Uh, what they don't have, the multicultural poverty model fails to take into account uh, what they don't have is equal access to educational opportunity, which makes it all the more astounding and amazing that you know that they would continue to invest so much uh, in you know the desire for their kids to be educated and, and that sort of thing. But the, you know, based on the research, there is no evidence that poor people care less about education or are less invested in it than, than wealthy people. 
And, you know, speaking of, of equal access to education, um, we just celebrated the 59th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision that was on May 17th. Um, ironically, May 18th was the 117th anniversary of the Plessy versus Ferguson opinion. And, you know, for many students of color who live in poverty, Plessy is still the law of the land, separate but equal. Um, except the schools that are serving students, especially students living in concentrated poverty, are not equal to better resource schools. And so those students don't have equal access to educational opportunity. Um, and so it feels a little as though we are back at square one, um, but the Supreme Court and other federal courts have uh, essentially taken diversity and integration off the table as a strategy to address where we are, and we're, we're waiting for the Fisher versus University of Texas opinion. Um, and it seems as though education reform efforts have focused on trying to equalize academic outcomes instead of focusing on diversity and integration. Will you talk about that? Why is it that diversity and integration are no longer a focus of education reform efforts? Well, in essence, it's a purely segregationist sort of thing. The, the people with um, the power to sway policy, um, you know, are invested in having segregated school systems. So we have, uh, you know, schools that are predominantly white, um, also tend to be schools that are predominantly higher income, and you have uh, parents who are, have more economic sway and more political sway, pressuring, uh, you know, their lo local legislators to to draw, uh, you know, um, to draw school boundary lines in ways that make sure their kids don't attend school with low-income kids, with kids of color, uh, and um, and that sort of thing, and and the push to move away from integration and move away from, you know, a focus on integration and, and diversity is based on this illusion that we've already uh, solved an issue that we haven't solved. In fact, in a lot of parts of the country, schools are more racially and economically segregated now than they were before Brown versus Board of Education. They're definitely more economically segregated now. Um, and uh, then you ask yourself, well, who who has something at stake to make sure that that stays the way it is. And uh, and, and that's who, where you can find. Uh, and, and the thing that, that also is scary about this is that we have, that is also kind of being used as an excuse to um, divert money from public schooling and move it into private industry. So we have things like vouchers and we have things like charter schools and we have things like... Uh, you know, other kinds of ways that public schools are being privatized. And they're being sold as movements toward equality when actually what's happening is the families who already have the most educational access and opportunity are actually expanding their own access and opportunity. This has not been, uh, nationally speaking, expanding opportunity for the families who have been denied the most opportunity. So it's really kind of interesting the way the pendulum has swung um, actually back in favor of segregation and unequal um, educational opportunity. Mm -hmm. 
you and I um, had a conversation, a very brief conversation, about school security, and, and this was shortly after Newtown happened, and we were talking about, you know, the, the difference in uh, schools with more privilege um, who have school security, but that school security is really kind of in the background. And um, for for children living in poverty and who um, are being served in schools with, with high populations of students living in poverty, um, especially for students of color, the, the police presence and security presence is trained on those students and uh, they are they are policed very differently. Um, will you just speak on some of the other disparities that we see uh, in, in schools with, with privilege and, and schools that are under-resourced? Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, just to kind of echo what you just said, that's, that's really huge. Um, one of the things that uh, people ha have observed when they've looked at schools kind of based on security things is that some of the lower income schools, it almost feels like um, like a prison. There's kind of this prison feel to it. Uh, but, but there are a lot of other things, you know, that the other big myth in, in the U.S. around education is that uh, education is the great equalizer. Unfortunately, um, resources aren't equally distributed. So, for instance, uh, schools that are lower income, you know, are much more likely to have inadequate resources, science labs, equipment for students to learn music, um, sports fields. Uh, the, the schools often um, just the infrastructure is is bad. Uh, so, you know, you'll have walls cracking and ceilings mm -hmm. collapsing and uh, and so it's just not often not conducive to, to uh, learning. Elementary schools where the playgrounds are in such disrepair that they're dangerous, you know, for kids to, to play on. Um, so you have that, and then, of course, you have the, the unequal distribution of teachers. So you have the most experienced uh, teachers, the teachers most likely to be certified in the subject, subjects that they're teaching, uh, concentrated in the highest income schools. Um, so, uh, you know, so there's there's that issue. Uh, in lower income schools, you have a lot more substitute teachers, a lot more long-term subs, a lot more people teaching outside of the subjects that they're certified to teach, uh, and uh, less experienced teachers as well. And then you also have less professional development uh, and, uh, and so on. So, uh, so as a result, another big inequality that we have is you have, uh, students in higher income schools getting access to the best instruction and the most engaging instruction, uh, uh, interactive instruction, uh, higher order thinking instruction, creative thinking, critical thinking instruction, and the students in the lowest income schools having access to um, to uh, often very rote uh, memorization kinds of instruction. Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know one thing that, that I, I, one of the things that I want to clarify about that too is i I think it's really easy um in that sense for people to blame the teachers for that, and mm -hmm. I think it's really important that teachers in low income schools also are um, de denied the resources they need, so this isn't a knock on teachers and <clears throat> of course 
some of the most um, committed teachers are the ones who decide, you know, I want to work in a low-income school or a school with a high percentage of um, students of color, and um, even though they're there often is kind of a max exodus out of those schools, um, you know, where teachers are trying to get jobs at, at wealthier schools, for instance. Um, there are a lot of teachers who choose that that's where they want to teach. And uh, despite the fact that they're denied the resources that that teachers in the wealthier schools are getting. So I, I think we have to be careful not to blame teachers for that, that that's an issue of unequal distribution of resources. Mm-hmm. In education um, reform especially, we look for um, measures to determine whether we have made progress in ensuring equitable educational opportunity to students. And one of those measures that has developed in society is whether we are colorblind or not. Um, and and people throw that around is you know well I'm colorblind so um, you know I've I have met that that standard I'm doing well um, in the race context for me that's a painful concept it is essentially um, an erasure of racial heritage and difference that that make us unique and that that really should be celebrated um, is there a similar concept in the socioeconomic context for children living in poverty? Well, I think the notion of education as a great great equalizer or, you know, people say things like every student is gifted and talented or, uh, you know, so there are these kind of buzz phrases that people use. And, and, um, and, and I do think that there are, you know, I... I don't think there's something exactly parallel, and I think part of that is because of the culture of poverty framework that's so popular in schools right now, so that so many teachers are being trained to actually identify cultural attributes that are particular to low-income students and to think about how that's different from middle-class students. But there are still these kind of buzz phrases that I think there's something similar to, to colorblindness, which is they mask the uh, they mask the inequities that exist. So you know, if somebody says individually I am colorblind, you know, mm-hmm. part of that is that denial, like you were talking about, of, of heritage and difference. But mm-hmm. take a step back, and a part of that is also. Because uh, it is also uh, masking the existence of of inequity and bias that exists. Mm-hmm. So um, talk about you know education being the great equalizer. What are all the things that we have to ignore to buy into that? Or thinking about society as a colorblind society, we have to ignore all the kinds of racial inequities and disparities that exist. Um, and then when we start trying to come up with solutions for outcome inequalities based on colorblindness or based on this assumption that we're all starting on a level playing field, inevitably what happens is the strategies are about fixing disenfranchised families. So if everything's equal and low-income students or students of color are not achieving um, at the same rate as their uh, classmates, then 
you know, the logical conclusion that people come to is, well, there must be something wrong with their families, so we need mm-hmm. to fix them rather than saying, okay, we need to look at the inequities and access to opportunity and that sort of thing. And that is a definite, definite, sure way to make sure that ultimately we don't make the kind of progress we need to make. And, you know, in in conversations about poverty, we often hear uh, race and class being conflated so that poor children are defined as black and brown children and financially wealthy children are understood to be white. But poverty and race are two separate things. They're two separate concepts. And even under the law, as I've said before, students living in poverty are not a protected class under the law. Um, Anti-discrimination and anti-harassment laws protect students by race, but not by socioeconomic status. And, And there has been research to demonstrate that the achievement gap between students living in poverty and more affluent students is growing. Um, will you talk about this intersection of race and class? Oh, yeah, and it's, it's really complex, too, because, uh, for instance, you know, again, I think people conflate them, like like you mentioned. And, of course, part of the problem with that is that even though poor people disproportionately are African-American, Latino, et cetera, um, if you just go by pure numbers, there are actually more poor people, more white poor people in the U.S. just by numbers than there are poor mm-hmm. people of color. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting thing that people don't, don't realize. Um, um, but when you start adding, uh, when you start sort of uh, adding the layers of uh, race across and start looking at that, that intersection, uh, you know, disproportionately uh, uh, students of color are also low-income students, and then disproportionately low-income students of color are concentrated um, into uh, into uh, particular schools. So uh, there's there's that. And then when you look at those intersections also around things like disproportionality in terms of who is being referred for discipline and uh, and also look at things like special education, who's being assigned to special education. Uh, you, uh, you, you can see the, the uh, sort of intersection there too. In fact, I think, you know, I think in some ways we do ourselves a disservice when we talk about all of these identities um, separately and forget that that there are intersections. I think there there's also you can also pull uh, gender into that and a, and a lot of other uh, identities as well. Mhm. Mhm. And how do you see in in the work that you've done um how do you see what what are the similarities i guess in the educational services provided to um to schools that are serving primarily white children who live in poverty and schools that are serving um black and brown children who live in poverty yeah well well i mean the, the similarities are are it's basically parallel it's it's the the same sort of thing one big difference is that people assume often that 
for instance, when they think of schools that have high percentages of low-income um, black and brown students, they immediately think urban. I think some people forget that in the Deep South, there are a lot of, uh, there are actually not even the Deep South. Right here, if you look, for instance, at parts of Prince George's County and other places, but in the Deep South, there are a lot of schools that are low-income, uh, predominantly African-American uh, in the Deep South, and people sort of forget that uh, concentrations of people of color in the Deep South and other other parts of the country. But, uh, you know, if you look basically between low-income schools that are predominantly people of color and low-income schools that are predominantly uh, white uh, you see basically the same patterns, which is uh, underpaid teachers, uncertified teachers, uh, lack of uh, resources. Uh, you also, another trend is uh, school closings. So when districts close schools, they're much more likely to close those type of schools. And so if you, and that's an interesting thing that's, similar in urban areas and rural areas right now, which, uh, you know, in rural areas, there's a lot of uh, um, school closings and combining districts, and the schools that are closing tend to be the schools that that uh, house the most low-income people. And you see the same thing happening in urban areas and predominantly African-American and Latino schools. Mm-hmm. So how can we then um, make progress in society to overcome this notion of a culture of poverty um, so that we can see individuals as human beings first and thus deserving of equal opportunity? Well, I think the first thing is just to become aware of the inequalities that exist. So remember to have that as much in the forefront of our minds as these other kinds of cultural things. But I think part of the challenge is that we get stuck on culture. So that culture is conflated with race and class, um, and then it's very easy to slip into that kind of deficit view. So I think just becoming more aware, I think, is the first step. Just becoming more aware of the myth about equal opportunity, that low-income people do not have equal opportunity um, in the U.S. They're much more, they're much less likely to have health care. They're much more likely, obviously, to be working in jobs that don't pay a living wage. So, uh, so often they're working multiple jobs, and then, then, of course, that affects their ability to spend time in their kids' schools and and um, and uh, that sort of thing. But I think what you said also at the individual level is key, that I have to remember that individuals are individuals. So I can't – so just to remember that no matter what identity we're talking about, we we just can't take one dimension of somebody's identity and make a bunch of assumptions about them based on that one identity, whether it's race or class or gender or sexual orientation or anything else. Um, that we're all very complex, and none of us wants anyone to do that about us. I don't want somebody to see just my whiteness and think that they have me all figured out based on that. So why would I want to do that to somebody else 
based on their racial identity. Um, so I think remembering that is is pretty essential. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to be clear that in in trying to dispel the myth of the culture a culture of poverty, um, you're not saying that there is no culture or should be no culture at all in the world. Um, what will you define for us? What culture is? Well, I think culture is a set of uh, shared values and beliefs. Um, And, you know, I think it's very broad. Uh, And, you know, so it's not that I don't think culture exists. I I think culture often is very regional. Um, I don't think it's necessarily as identity-based as other people think it is. So when somebody says something like African-American culture, I think, okay, are you talking about urban African-American culture or rural African-American culture? Are you talking about African-Americans in D.C.? Are you talking about African-Americans in the Bayou? Are you talking about African-Americans on the islands off of the Carolinas? Um, Am I to assume that just because all of them have this whole group of African-Americans that uh, all have uh, ancestry at some point in their backgrounds from somewhere on the continent of Africa, which, of course, actually scientifically is true of all of us, but uh, more recent ancestry there, uh, that just because of that, that they all share the same culture, uh, I think that's kind of ludicrous. And I think even to say that all African-Americans in Washington, D.C., even if I take that kind of regional view, that they all have the same culture, I think that's ludicrous. I just don't think culture works that way. Um, so I think being able to have kind of a broader view of that, uh, you know, in the you know, and I think white people especially are fond of kind of putting that on African Americans, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't put that on themselves. Like white people wouldn't say all white people have the same culture, you know. I think mm-hmm. most white people would be offended by that notion, but would be pretty quick to apply that to other people. Um, so, I, I, so I don't think that there is that culture doesn't exist. I just think it's very complex. And I don't think Mm -hmm. culture is driven by singular identities. I don't think culture is driven by race solely or by class solely or by religion solely. Um, I just think it's much more complex than that. Mm -hmm. And the the way that I... um have described it before is that you know I think of culture as kind of a web that that you know crisscrosses and links with different their cultural connections to different um, groups of people you know so um, culturally I come from a family that it that migrated from the south to the north during the Great Migration um, I come from um, you know a family of of folks who value education and who think that education is important and that connects us to, to several different types of people. Um, you know, so I, I think of, of culture more as kind of a, a web of potential connections to different people all over the world um, and that there are certain similarities and certain ways of communicating within those connections uh, that are important and that certainly should be um, celebrated and, and practiced. Um, and passed on to generations. 
but I, I do think I agree with you that it's, it is very difficult to lump people into a group and say they are part of this culture and this is how you treat them, period. Right. Right. So so it is it is sort of passed on uh, through, definitely I agree that with that sort of notion of it being kind of uh, passed on, um, uh, and then a lot of different things influence that, and that could be ethnicity, and it could be religion, and it could be regional sorts of things, um, you know. So, like I think of, you know, my mom's people who are from Appalachia, they're white, um, but they don't have anything cultural. They don't have very much culturally in common with white people who, you know, wealthier white people who live in northwest D.C. You know, mm-hmm. if I put them side by side, I could not assume that just because they share the same racial identity that they share, they don't eat the same thing. They don't, uh, you know, they don't um, necessarily, uh, they don't talk the same way. They don't use the same language. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't child rear the same way. And then if I, even if I go into that Appalachian community where my mom grew up, I still can't assume that everyone in that community, even though they're all white, they're all poor, they're all Appalachian, I still can't assume, you know, that they all have the same religious beliefs, that they all have the same child-rearing activities, that they all have the same, um, uh, you know, there are some things that that are similar, such as language varieties and and that sort of thing, but um, I I can't assume beyond that that, that... they share everything in common. Mm-hmm. So how can educators incorporate student voice and, and really hear from their students about how to instruct their their students and how they want to be instructed? Well, I think, you know, being in communication with local communities, you know, thinking about that collaboratively, I think is a good start. Um, you know, I think anything we could do to collaborate and bring the local community, whatever that community is, into the discussion about what needs to happen in schools. And, and I also think that the most important voices and the most knowledgeable voices about what needs to change in education are the students themselves. So I think having the humility to engage with students, to not assume that we know more than we know, um, and to pull students into that conversation, uh, I, I think is really important. And, you know, and there are a lot of great resources, too, that are subject area specific about how to do things like that, like Rethinking Schools, the organization Rethinking Schools has a lot of great uh, resources that can help people, uh, that can help people think about that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul Gorski is an education professor at George Mason University and the founder of EdChange at edchange.org. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it, Allison. We are continuing the conversation on race, class, and education this Saturday, June 15th in Washington, D.C., at the Hill Center from noon to 3 p.m. We have some remarkable panelists, including one of Paul Gorski's colleagues, Dr. Janice View, and including D.C. high school students. 
and we'll have a frank, facilitated discussion about race and class and education. You are now officially certified know-it-alls about the culture of poverty myth. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. My website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find ABC on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.